Another guest, another podcast. We are back this week. Thank you for tuning in again. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91octane.com. Also, don't forget, use code SHIPBOX, S-H-I-P-B-O-X, for free shipping on orders over $35 on a website. Let's start the show. All right, mics are hot. Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and you are seeing on the screen an actor, comedian, upright Citizens Brigade alum, an F1 content machine, James Coker. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat. Long time listener, first time guest. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Likewise, man. It's it's so interesting because I've been following you for a while. I love the F1 content. It sort of made me lean into F1 a little more uh, yeah. through sort of viewing your content and understanding understanding a different perspective of it. Um, so I really want to make sure we get into some of that. Uh, of course, we're going to cover your headlines. We're going to get into a little about James Coker. You can yeah. share as much as you want, as little as you want. There is no censoring. There's nothing off limits in 91 Octane. Feel free to share as Love much that. as you're willing to. But I also um, feel it, like I also feel like 91 Octane has like a very sort of like broad scope of what you guys cover. It's like cars in general as well as motorsport. Like. I feel like you've positioned yourself as like the onion for for car enthusiasts. Would that be accurate? Um, that is the goal. Like, it, I, I'm, like I get really excited when I hear people say this. So, like, yeah. when you've said that, like, it's it's sort of in that same vein. I want to be. I kind of want to explore a little more of what you do too. I don't want to just be like the onion, right? Because I do. I sort of use. Uh, now I'm blanking on it, but uh, National Lampoon is sort. Oh of, yeah. That's my inspiration uh, and sort of where I really, really enjoy in terms of what I enjoy in terms of consuming content. So I, of course, naturally want to put that into my own content. So, I mean, yeah. I think the fact that you're saying that it's awesome and, yeah, it's in that same vein. Um, but, you know, getting into uh, sort of that those niches that you just described, I feel like you're right. I am on the broad, sort of broad automotive spectrum, kind of cover a little bit of everything, whereas you cover F1 specifically. Yeah. And there are, I feel like there are advantages to doing that. So uh, do you feel like there are advantages to what I'm doing and vice versa? I think it's like, uh, yeah, it's what I'm doing right now is very niche. I've kind of painted myself into a corner for for just making Formula One content and like sometimes IndyCar stuff. But uh, it's gotten to the point where if I make a post that is not F1 related, people are like, why are you posting something that has nothing to do with Formula <laughs> One? It's like I'm not allowed to exist online unless I'm making something pertaining to Formula One at this point. Uh, it's nice because uh i've been able to build a pretty big audience since i started i started around april of this year um and so it's been like seven months now i grew wow. my follower count on instagram from like three thousand to like forty-eight thousand, and i think part of that had to do with the fact that there weren't a lot of people doing comedy content in the f1 space yeah. um 
And for me, the transition was pretty natural because I've been doing improv and sketch comedy for, you know, over a decade. And I've been making videos online, both on YouTube and uh, on Instagram and TikTok as well. But they're sort of, they were sort of like broad, like I was making videos and sketches about anything and everything. But all of a sudden when I niched down into F1, which kind of happened by accident, uh, the audience was there because they were really hungry for stuff to laugh at about a sport they really like. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I do want to get into sort of how you fell into F1 later because, you know, I've I've dug into every James Coker trench that I could prior Uh-oh. to this podcast. And and man, like you've got yeah, you span your content spans a whole different variety of things and it very much has a, a lot of your content has a, you know, for for people who are familiar with SNL, has an SNL feel to it, right? Very yeah, sketch sure. comedy, very uh, it's very broad, just sort of general life kind of joking. Uh, we'll get into some of your characters that I have questions about too. Uh, but let's go into I feel our like headlines. I'm, I feel like I'm about to get Nardwar. <laughs> no, no, not at all, not at all. Please don't compare me to Nardwar. He's got a whole team doing research. No, I'm saying you're gonna pull something out of, out of your head. I'm gonna be like, how did you know that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> If you could just pretend and then react that way anyway, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> we'll use that as a bite. But let's get into our first headline. T-Paint invents the first self-tuning car computer called Auto-Tune. So T-Paint recently launched, launched Nappy Automotive with Hurt, and uh, he committed to kind of bleeding into all of motorsports. So now we've got a singer jumping into motorsport and making a meaningful impact on that side. Uh, we've discussed recently you're a Formula One fan. You're an F1 yeah. content expert at this point. I mean, jumping from 3K to 40K in seven months, I mean, it took me much longer to do that. Um, yeah. If you weren't using your skills for F1, what other sports discipline would you be focused on? And I know you cover IndyCar a little bit, so let's skip IndyCar too. Sure. But- I mean, uh, when, when it comes to sports, like uh, I watch uh, the Dallas Cowboys and F1, and that's about it. Like, I mean, I also okay. love the Dallas Mavericks, but like, and uh, I watch soccer too, but um, right now at this point in my life, especially because I have a kid, I have to sort of whittle, whittle down where my attention goes. Uh, it's the Dallas Cowboys in, in Formula One races. Oh, okay. Um, but, but also... Uh, I am absolutely obsessed with orcas, uh, also known as killer whales. Like I, I'm not, I'm not even joking. I have like recurring dreams about orcas. Uh, when I was in college, I would go down these internet rabbit holes and I'd stay up to like three or four a.m. doing like research about the different pods all over the world and the different like subspecies of orcas because like they all speak different languages and hunt in different ways. I used to know. Uh, where every single orca in captivity was in the world and, like, where what pod they came from and what their name was and yada, yada, yada. So, like, absolutely obsessed with killer whales. That is so random. What, what sparked that? I don't know. I think I just really got into them as a kid. Yeah. And, uh, I've just always been obsessed with them. Yeah, I feel like we all have those things. Like, for me, it was dinosaurs for a really long yeah. time, like, growing right. up. Sure. But then, you know, other things take your attention, but you're saying you've gone back to orcas and you're dreaming. I never orcas. left. I never left. It's not that I didn't come back. I, ne- I never left. It, John, I don't know if you know this, but orcas are the wolves of the sea. They're an apex predator. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm aware. I'm aware. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I, the sea is probably what I least know about, but, like, the predators, like the sharks, 
the killer whales, right? Most whales I'm fairly familiar with, but don't test me on that. Yeah. Also, um, fun fact, killer whales are not in whales. They're part of the dolphin family. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. I did yeah, not well, know that. So, so, every day. so, yeah. So orcas are mammals? Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, f- scrap the automotive part of this podcast. We're yeah. going to talk whales for the rest of this show. <laughs> <laughs> I do have a question about the T Pain uh, headline that you just read about. Sure. Yeah. Is there a way? Because I know, like, uh, in the past, you've had whistle tips, and we all know about the classic Ebon <laughs> world, butt rub, the whistles go woo. Yeah. Is there a way to auto-tune exhaust on a car? No. No, there isn't. I mean, because that is solely dependent on the geometry of the exhaust, right? So it's okay. how, how wide the piping is. How staggered each of the exits from the engine are. I mean, it's yeah. No, it would require too much physically. I mean, what if we mic'd the exhaust and had a PA system like speaker on top of the car and made that louder than the exhaust and auto tune to that in real time? Is that do we have that technology? We have that technology. There. <laughs> <laughs> We have that technology. Yes, we do. I mean, it could be as simple as like a voice morpher, right, that we're putting the yeah. sound through. But there are actually EV companies now making uh, exhaust sounds for their Oh, EV my cars. God. That's yes, so funny. Yes. It launched at SEMA last year, I remember. And, yeah, and so people are getting into that. And you can put, like, Ferrari sounds on your car. You can put whatever you want on your car. I mean, it's limitless in terms of that. I actually had this idea uh, for attending Formula E races because I think one of the things that is missing from Formula E first other racing series is that uh, going to a race, and correct me if I'm wrong, is such an auditory experience. Oh, yeah. And there is something about the sound of the engines that like really triggers something in people. It's like uh, ASMR or something like that. But uh, it's part of the uh, feeling all the senses while you're there. And a Formula E race, it's incredibly quiet. So I made the argument that you should they should have people standing at the corner with microphones making like vroom vroom noises <laughs> as they go by, like and try to match it to the passing of each car. I feel like I feel like we should do. You should figure out how to do that. That would be hilarious. I'm gonna look into it. <laughs> just like one guy holding the speaker and you on a microphone right next to him that's it it doesn't have to be more complicated than that that's perfect yeah. formula uh, e can just employ me i'll go to all the races i'll stand at one of the turns yeah there's some tesla series out here that we could practice on right it's that. just a bunch of teslas on track it's an enclosed environment oh this is beautiful this is wonderful <laughs> <laughs> but that's so fascinating me that that these EVs are artificially making sounds. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I, I think it's getting a little more normalized now. But initially, the car community was kind of polarized by it. Right? It's like, come right. on, like, why are you pretending? There's no point in that. But it goes back to what you just described. Like cars, not just races. Cars in general are an auditory experience. Most of the time, people on the street aren't going to be using the 800 horsepower that they bought from Ford. But they're going to hear those 800 horsepower, and that's essentially what they want. So yeah. 
the EV world, it almost naturally makes sense. And even in some cars, like the Supra, Toyota was piping in sound through speakers to the inside of the car because wow. the cabins are now so soundproof that you can't hear the car from the outside. So, yeah, sound is a big thing with cars, man. It's a huge thing. But let's go into our next headline. SEMA show car owners furious over new requirements for display cars to run. In case you don't know, James, it is common knowledge that a lot of display cars at SEMA and at a lot of car shows are not running for the same reason that my car isn't running. We procrastinate. <laughs> we wait until the last minute to get our cars done, and they don't. So my first question to you is, have you gone to SEMA yet? No, this is in Las Vegas, correct? This is in Las Vegas, yes. And going on, it was this week, this year. Um, you have So you have recently entered the automotive space with your F1 content, correct? Yeah. So let's talk correct. about that a little more. How would you get sure. into sort of the F1 lane and merge it with comedy? Unfortunately, like my origin story of becoming a Formula One fan is like uh, Beauty and the Beast. It's tale as old as time. I watched uh, <laughs> I watched Drive to Survive DTS with, with my wife. Okay. Uh, we we binged it. You know, I watched it. We, we got into it at the beginning of this year. So like we watched Ooh. it. We, we binged it in like a month. Like we watched all five seasons. Yeah. And uh, I actually did not start watching F one until the third race of this year. So the Australian Grand Prix was the first race I ever watched in real time because I was still watching Drag to Survive and I didn't want any spoilers in the show. So I didn't follow the sport until I was <laughs> caught up with the show. That is, like to me, that's that's backwards, but I completely understand how your approach because of how you came into the sport. Yeah, like I experienced 2021 Abu Dhabi like February of this year and I was totally in the dark about what had happened. And, uh, but now, but now I'm, uh, I think up to speed with what's happening. And what, and so you watch the content, you're kind of, oh, this is pretty cool. I drive to survive is amazing. I mean, they do a great job of covering, uh, the races and all the drama. Um, how did you decide that? Okay. Oh, what was the first moment that you said, I'm going to merge this with comedy. So it wasn't like a, a straight up decision. I kind of fell ass backwards into making up one content. So uh, and I know a lot of people will like roll their eyes or shake their head when I say like I got into a three drive for survive because there's like a lot of old school fans that are very gatekeepy and just hate the new sort of influx of fans that uh, follow F1 not just for the racing but also for like the cultural aspects of the sport. Right. Um, but I kind of fell ass backwards into making F1 content. Like the first video I made with my wife was us in our car uh, doing like team radio. And yeah. so, you know, I'd be talking like I was a driver talking to my engineer and she would talk back to me and, uh, you know, we, we filmed it and then I took like onboard footage from our Prius uh, <laughs> on the highway and out of that. And, uh, you know, in Premiere, which is where I edit my videos, I adjusted the audio to make it sound like it was coming from radio, even though we're sitting right next to each other. And uh, that video went viral and I, you know, it was shared by a bunch of websites, motorsport.com, ESPN, Sports Illustrated. And um, we, and I had a lot of footage left from that shoot. I'm like, okay, this video did pretty well. Let me cut up another version of this because I have all this extra footage. That, that video went viral. So I was like, okay, I have enough for two more videos. So I did the same thing. I made two more videos based off of that shoot. 
and they continue to go. So I was like, okay, let me try one more video. And I think the next video I did, it was like, I compared um, Formula One drivers to Mario Kart characters. And then I also like compared F1 teams to NFL teams. Uh, and those videos did really well. So then I told myself, okay, I'm going to keep making F1 stuff until it stops getting engagement and it never stopped getting engagement. And all of a sudden I kind of got pigeonholed into being like an F1 content creator. Yeah, I think, but I think honestly, that's kind of how you build a fan base, right? And yeah. I think I think you niched properly and um, kind of merging those different worlds. I would have never guessed because the the my first exposure to James Coker was the video that you described, right? It went yeah. viral. I saw it. I'm like, this is genius. Like, you know, putting this in regular life, it's just an. But I would have never guessed that was sort of like the first. And I would have assumed, right, that you've been in the F1 world forever and you understand the insight and therefore that let you construct that skit, right? That sketch was, was awesome right. to see. Um, and so then you kind of snowballed and got stuck pigeonholed into, into like the Formula One game. And now you're, poding, you're posting content at a very high rate. What does your content schedule look like now, you know, that, you know, you have your lane but you're putting out constant content. What, what does that you mean? Know, to quote a president who I will not name here, zero strategy. There's no strategy. Absolutely <laughs> no strategy. But uh, there really is no, it's, it's like, um, I, I should be better about scheduling content and like having a schedule and sort of like planning out my content for the week and the month. But it's more so like if I get inspired to make a piece of content based off of a moment that's happening culturally and F1 or a moment that happens in the race, I make it right away and I post it. Cause I like, I'm not really good about sitting on videos. They're like burning a hole in my pocket and I just like want to put it out there in the world and move on. So, yeah. um, I don't really have a schedule. And so there will be some weeks where there's a lot going on and I have the time and the bandwidth and I'll crank out like a video a day. And there's some weeks like this week where I like, I think I did one video and, uh, there are like, I've been lucky enough that I've sort of found uh, formats that I can repeat over and over again that still feel fresh, but the format is there. Like I do one now where I do a recap of each race with a soundboard of like trending TikTok sounds and songs. And it doesn't go super viral, doesn't go really big, but there is like a, uh, there's a core audience that really likes it and engages with it. So I make that every week. And uh, I do these press conference videos that are very fun and easy for me to do that people really like. So um, it just varies from week to week. And uh, I would love to be cranking out seven videos a week, but uh, you know I have a full time job, I have a kid, so uh, sometimes it just doesn't happen. Yeah, no, that's a lot of work. And so it, let's talk about your creative process a little bit. I know you mentioned that you can't sit on a video; it burns a hole in your pocket. That can yeah. mean eighteen different things to eighteen different people, right? What does that mean to you? Burning a hole in the pocket? Do you? Well, it's like, it's like when people say they have money burning a hole in their pocket, like they have to spend it. So it's like, yeah. for me, when I have a video and I make it, like I can't just sit on it. I want to put it out into the world. I want people to see it. And so it's hard for me just to sit on a piece of content. Okay. So it's really just the eagerness to put it out and not so much kind because of, the problem that I encounter is if I sit on a video, I start thinking about the ideas and what I put into it. And then I start thinking, oh, I should modify this. I should modify that. When creating your content, do you ever go through that trouble? Sometimes, sometimes. But I find the more precious I make a piece of content, the less, uh, typically the less uh, well it does. Like, <laughs> 
it's it's always like for me the piece of content that like had no thought into it that had very little work that was like kind of effortless are the pieces of content that do the best the ones that where i'm like breaking down every little piece and constantly adjusting things and things are like really precious for for whatever reason like they don't do that well so like i've tr tried to teach myself not to treat pieces of content as precious as i have in the past and once the idea is done sort of the base of it's there i just put it out into the world okay and how do you measure the success of your content we all have our own ways right we can't really rely on metrics sometimes but what, what, what would you consider successful in terms of you know the reaction i mean I, I more than anything it's like the comments it's like how many people are engaging with it and how many people are sharing it because like i might have a piece of content that does really well that gets like a lot of likes but uh, if it doesn't get like, uh, if people aren't excited enough about it to comment on it or share it to their story or send it to a friend, uh, I feel like it's not as successful as you might think so on the surface. Um, and, you know, I have sort of like an average of like the amount of engagement that like any piece of content I put out there, like a normal piece of content that I put out there, like, you know, I have like 40,000 followers right now. I'd say like on average, Something that I put out there will have get like 2,000 likes and maybe like 100 comments or something like that. And that's like, this thing didn't flop, but it also didn't sort of break out of the sphere of the people who follow me and regularly engage with my content. Um, but when sometimes it triggers something in people and people really, uh, you know, resonate with it. Like there was a recent one I did about Ferrari, uh, people becoming Ferrari fans. And that whenever I make anything about Ferrari, like people lose their mind. Uh, uh, but and, and I think that's one of the things about making uh, content on online. Like one of the easiest ways to get engagement is to reinforce an already existing fan base. Yeah. And it kind of is like a hack and I don't want to always do it, but uh, often it's the stuff that's reinforcing like something that people passionately love that is immediately going to get a ton of engagement. Yeah. And there's a lot of fanaticism in the F1 world. So yeah, you've got a lot of that to pick from um, and choose from, but let's move into our next headline F1 to introduce work from home racing in 2025 <laughs> to be ready for the next pandemic. <laughs> love it. So, uh, this one was actually inspired because F1 is ahead of the game in terms of the carbon-free game, right? 2026, they're moving to carbon-free fuels. It just makes sense that they prepare for the next pandemic before anybody else. Um, you know, but let's talk racing a little more. In your experience with ra with racing, has F1 sparked any desires for you to move into racing, whether it's the sim world, esports, or actual racing? Uh, I mean, I have like a very cheap uh, wheel and pedal that I play with occasionally now. Like I have F one twenty three. Okay. Uh, I have a, what is it a Seto uh, Corsa? I, yeah, I have that. Yeah. And I racing and like I'll occasionally like turn it on and play. I typically stick with playing F one twenty three, but I'm very bad at it. Like <laughs> what was so surprising to me is how hard it is to not just be good, just to be proficient at these uh, sim racing games. Uh, and I was like all of a sudden 
like looking up racing lines on corners and like I was like watching YouTube tutorials about like understanding the physics of driving and I'm like how did I end up here how did I end up here like I just wanted to play a video game and now I'm like on YouTube taking physics yeah. tutorials yeah. I'm supposed to be rock. looking up orcas right now what what is <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, so you little dabble. I mean, that's the struggle of a driver. You you've dabbled yeah. in the racing world now, and F one is very challenging, and it's the consistency yeah. that really really drives whether you're going to be good or not. Have you yeah. participated in like an online race yet? No, I mean, I, I typically like typically just drive in free practice and like qualifying. I rarely do a race because like I'll you know. It'll take me like 30 or 45 minutes to get a clean lap in free practice. Yeah. And because I'm constantly like spinning out or hitting a quarter wrong or crashing into the wall and having to restart. I'm like, I don't, I don't think I'm proficient enough to enjoy actual racing at this point. I don't, I like, I, I think uh, enjoying racing is, and some people are going to disagree, enjoying re- racing is enjoying the torture of it. Because what you have just described, what you have just described is how it is, right? You're looking for that 10th. You're looking for that perfect line. You're looking for that perfect pass. And you start getting really competitive, whether it's with yourself or whether it's with anyone else. So it's always stressful in some way or another. Like, I like to game, but the sim racing side of thing is really the only gaming that leaves me very stressed out at the end of an hour. It's right, hard. As opposed to calming me down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like if you're like, there's a few times where I've been a race and like maybe the first one, two, maybe three laps I can do clean. And then yeah. I don't have the stamina to be able to get clean laps for an entire race for half an hour, 45 minutes. Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's intense. It's intense, but yeah. you know, it's I'm, I'm going to need that username and we're going to have to. but like i mentally it is right mentally it's very similar i mean physically you're not you know you're not taking the same toll but yeah you know we're we're i'm gonna continue the dream that i can still be verstappen even though i'm (laughs) way past that (laughs) yeah Yeah, well i mean uh, there's 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 some stories there too Uh, I, i think i was built for this but let's get into our next headline and final headline. Haas F1 challenges Andretti to an apple pie bake-off to determine who's most American. Uh, one of the biggest headlines right now uh, in Formula One is Andretti making a move to move into F1 with Cadillac or uh, GM. Um, what are your thoughts on adding teams to the grid? I think the more the barrier. I think at one point at its peak, there were 26 cars uh, on, yeah. on the grid. Uh, so uh, historically, there there's often been many seasons where there were more than 10 teams. Uh, I do feel like just 10 teams and 20 cars uh, does feel a little small. Um, and so I'm all for adding teams. I think like probably the right number is 12 teams, 24 cars. Um, and also, also knowing that it is such a cost prohibitive sport to not just get into, but also to stay in, that some of those teams will drop out and will make room for a new a new team, or an existing team might decide they don't want to be a part of it anymore. So, um, I think it makes the sport a little more interesting, and also gives uh, Haas the opportunity to not be dead last. 
<laughs> yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a. Uh, Andretti's never really built a car from the ground up. I mean, right. you know, the the where he's raced, you've pr- you're provided a car. So I estimate he's going to be a back of the pack too. But he's he's doing some things right now, uh, and this is sort of the cultural side of racing that I kind of want to get your perspective on. He's recently described that the grid sees him as a hillbilly, uh, but he's also antagonizing uh, really a lot of the f- current Formula One teams, and especially Haas saying that his team is a true American team. You have an American driver, you have a car that's built here, and you have an American engine built here, as opposed to Haas, who's pulling a, a car off of the Ferrari shelf. Well, I think we all can agree that like Formula One is a very elitist sport, and uh, it's a very elitist sport that has European roots, so there's like a sense of a snobbery and elitism that comes from the establishment. And so... This guy, Michael Andretti, who comes along, who, like, you know, Michael Andretti was a, was a decent driver. Like, you know, uh, Mario Andretti was, is, is a legend, but and Michael's definitely not that, but, like, he has the Andretti name. Uh, but he's, like, he's Michael Andretti and the Andretti brand isn't cool and sexy the way a lot of Formula One brands are, like Ferrari and Mercedes-Benz and Aston Martin. And I think that's where like the disconnect is like, I know Michael Andretti went to all the other team principals and asked for, or not team principals, but team owners asking for support. Like, will you support me and vouch for me if I make this bid? And I think most of them like laughed in his face or said no. Um, so I, I think that's what he's coming up against right now. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I, I wish they would be more accepting of, of new teams. Uh, I like that. Andretti is already a well-oiled machine as an organization. Like they, I think they participate in every racing ser- every major racing series, with the exception of Formula One. And uh, I know they're not a Chip Ganassi or a Penske, but they are competitive and somewhat successful in IndyCar. So I think over time they'd be able to translate some of that success in Formula One. So I think they deserve a shot. Um, how much focus, if they do make it, right, how much focus are you going to put on making Andretti F1 content? Uh, I mean, just, I mean, I don't make a ton of Haas F, uh, F1 content, so I think it just <laughs> depends on what kind of noise they make, you know? Uh, I think I like to make a lot of content just based on what's going on, what people are talking about, and be part of the conversation. So I don't think I'd focus solely on Andretti Global, but, like, I will say on Andretti Global, like, that was a weird rebrand for me. And I definitely had uh, prestige worldwide vibes from Step Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> like, That's probably why they're not even taken seriously. Yeah, I'm imagining Michael Andretti giving the presentation like at Step Brothers to all the team owners, going, "Andretti Global, 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 the premier sports brand." brand I'd be brand. a fan. I'd definitely be a fan. I'd be all the, over that. The number one in entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Like, hell yeah. I mean, there's going to be a huge influx of fans if when this happens, which I believe it will happen. Um, yeah. You know, but going jumping off of that question, are there any specific things that you look for, you know, post-race, pre-race, during the race, that uh, that are highlights that you, like, intentionally look for to create content from? I think a lot of times it's um, it's, like, small little moments that happen in the broadcast that other people might not pick up on. Like, 
I remember watching free practice at the Canadian Grand Prix. And as you know, like uh, at in Montreal, at the Villeneuve circuit, there's uh, the gophers or the groundhogs that are that everybody knows about. Mm-hmm. And like I, you know, there were a lot of shots of the groundhogs or gophers, like on a, you know crossing the road and and stuff. So I feel like that'll be something like really easy and fun and simple to like sort of uh, highlight and talk about and comment on. And a lot of other people probably noticed it, but they feel like they were the only one. So like when you make an observation and everyone's like, oh my God, I thought I was the only person who, who saw that. Like they uh, feel a connection with like the piece of content you made. Uh, and then also like finding moments that happen in the race and kind of exaggerating them or blowing them out of proportion in a comedic way. Like uh, the, not the last race, but the prior race where uh, Max and his engineer GP we're kind of yelling at each other uh, on on the radio, and Max would be like, "Shut up! Don't talk to me while I'm breaking." Like <laughs> moments like that are super funny to me. Okay, and uh, you know, is sort of your creative process because sometimes you look at these simple things, and not everybody's going to think I can make a joke out of that or I can make that funny, right? Right. In terms of the your formula of making something funny or or, or making a caricature of it or just using that sample. It, are there are there things that you've learned along the way that you're co- incorporating here, or is this really just how your mind works? I think it's a combination of the two, but like really a lot of it comes down to the training I had in doing improv and sketch comedy. Because in improv, they constantly ask you, uh, they want you to ask yourself internally, like if this is true, what else is true, and so like uh, what can you ex- what can you do to expand on is already happening in front of you. For example, when there were the rumors that Lewis Hamilton and um, Shakira were dating. I was like, that's funny. And I could comment directly on that or what else is true to that rumor. And I was like, what if I made a Shakira song about dating Lewis Hamilton? And, you know, I made like a song, it was like box, box to my soul or whatever. And I did a very similar thing with the uh, Taylor Swift, Fernando Alonso dating rumors. I wrote a Taylor Swift song as if she had broken up with Fernando Alonso and was like singing about him. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was wonderful. So, so it's like that. It's like, it's like math. It's just like, you know, like how can I take like an already existing like genre or thing that happens in the world and merge it with what's happening in F1 right now and make it work. Got it. Yeah. I have a very similar approach with sort of the stuff that I write uh, for 91 Octane with the satirical headlines. It's, it's like sort of how uh, how big can we blow up this balloon, right? It starts yeah. out really small, but there's ideas that branch out, and how ridiculous can we make it? So that's awesome. I might have to uh, – do you give lessons? You know, I, I'm looking <laughs> no, at, I'm happy to talk to you, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Awesome, dude. No, that's great. I mean, uh, now those are our headlines. Now I want to learn a little more about you, although we've been doing a lot of that. I want to get into some specifics. Um, you're a certified actor. Your IMDb page is probably the longest I've seen of any guest here. Uh, so thank you for entertaining me. I love, see- I, I love talking I to celebrities. Say, I will say I'm a sketch comedian. So an IMDb for a sketch comedian is like a CBS receipt. It's like really long, <laughs> but most of it doesn't mean anything. So like a lot of the cre- so a lot of the credits that I have on IMDb are for like a, a sketch that I did for a website or something like that. So, like, yeah. I do have some TV and film credits, but that makes up, like, you know, 15 or 20% of my IMDb. 
Okay, so we've, you're humble. You're a humble dude. I mean, I don't have an ID, I, IMDb page at all, so I get it, though. I get, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. But, you know, you're known for your sketches you described, right? You have the Formula One press conferences. Those are hilarious. You had the Les Mis F1 crossover. That was awesome. Uh, nice. I still go back to that every once in a while. Um, how, when did you get, you know, you've been doing this for a while. When did you get comfortable in front of a camera? Because it seems very uh, natural for you to do the ridiculous things you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for a decade now. So it's like I, I've been comfortable on camera since I started doing comedy. Like, you know, I started uh, I started off working in TV. I was a production assistant. My very first job out of college was I was a production assistant on 30 Rock. And I worked on oh, that show. Oh, wow. For, okay. Yeah. So I worked on that show for three seasons. And while I was doing that, I was taking improv and sketch comedy classes and performing and stuff. And so it was probably around like 20, 2009, 2010, where I really started getting comfortable like being on camera and performing in front of large uh, audiences. So like I've been doing it for a very long time. I just, you know, sort of pivoted to making like motorsport stuff. Okay. Now I, I want to know more about production assistant stuff, right? On 30 Rock. I was a huge 30 Rock fan. It's one of the shows that I'll recycle as a second screen show. Uh, yeah. But what is sort of the natural. I know being a production assistant can take you many different directions, but sort of what's the natural progression of a production assistant kind of moving up in that world? The natural progression is to become an assistant director, which is like that handles all the scheduling and the running of the set, and it's a really hard job. And then a lot of assistant directors eventually become unit production managers or line producers, which are like handling the, uh, the budget in the day-to-day. Um, but a lot of people who are in who started out as production assistants, learning about like different departments and then branch out. Like they might be like, Oh, I really like lighting. I want to become an electric or I'm really interested in camera. So like they'll get a job as a camera PA or they'll go work in a camera, like rental house and learn all the parts of the camera and eventually become like a, a loader or an AC uh, and then eventually like a camera operator. So, um, there are several different like routes you can go uh, as a production assistant, but the natural progression, if you stay in production, is to become an assistant director. Okay. Now, what was your direction with being a PA at the time? I wanted at the time I wanted to be an AD, and then okay. af- after doing it for three or four years, because I started like doing it when I was twenty three, uh, I realized that long term it wasn't a sustainable life for me. It's like working at, working on set in production, uh, and it. In any crew member job, like working as a grip and electric, uh, you know, sound mixer, camera operator, um, props, like the hours are really long, uh, and it's a pretty grueling schedule. And I think I realized that while I could handle it in my twenties, I didn't want to be in my forties and fifties working hours like that. So I just realized like, I, I just couldn't, I, I didn't think I had it in me to do it long term. Okay. And no, I also had uh, the bug, bug to. I also had the bug to perform and act and write and stuff. So I was like gravitating towards that. And I, uh, towards the end of me working in production, I kind of had like one foot out the door. Okay, was that a bug that you developed there, or have you always had that bug? I think I've always had it, but I was never like completely honest with myself about wanting to do it because like like uh, I grew up with like a lot of uh, financial instability, and so I felt like while I wanted to like pursue something creative, I felt like I didn't have the luxury to do that. So like I studied business in college and I was originally going to like go work in like marketing or, you know, work at a bank or something like that. And then like last minute decided to go work in production. And I felt like that was like a compromise between 
doing something creative and doing something super stable because it was like a path and it was like a real job. Uh, and then eventually I, I just, I think when my dad passed away, I realized, uh, you know, life is short. So I wanted to just give it a go. Okay. Sorry about your dad, man. I was fine. I mean, he was like, yeah. he was like, he was 79 when he passed away. So he lived a long life and, uh, okay, good. it was, it was like 12 years ago, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that made me sort of reevaluate everything and realize, realize that I, you know, wanted to try to, to to pursue what I really wanted to do and just go from there. Yeah, I mean, we have a very similar backgrounds in that the the sort of the financial instability. You know, I have immigrant parents. There is no thought of doing what you want to do. It's you've got to figure out your life. Then once. You've got that figured out, then you can pursue creative interests, right? Yeah. And so now, now that I've made it through that, I, I like, I want to encourage people to explore the creativity, right? Spend more time there, take chances, because um, I feel like it makes the world better. So that's that's awesome that you know you're you're doing that as well. Now let's stay in that time frame. Okay. What you know? What is like a highlight of that time that you can share with us that you know maybe wouldn't get us a cease and desist letter, but would be a, a you know a little spicy for my time working on Thirty Rock. Yeah, or you know, just time at a PA or kind of those early days. I, I think for me is like the first year and a half I worked on Thirty Rock. Uh, I went to work every morning just absolutely in awe that this was my job. Like I was a big fan of the show. Uh, I'd always like loved comedy, like Saturday, you know, I grew up like watching and loving Saturday Night Live. It was always my dream to be like a cast member on SNL. Like a lot of people who get into comedy, like that's why they do it. They want to be on Saturday Night Live. So like yeah. getting to work on 30 Rock, which was like, felt like kind of adjacent to that because so many people from SNL worked on that show as well was, uh, just, it was just for me, just a very cool experience. And I think one of the things that inspired me to pursue uh, a career as an actor was I got the the writers wrote me into an episode uh, of Thirty Rock on season five, and I got to do a scene with Alec Baldwin and Elizabeth Banks, which was really really fun. I and, knew I um, recognized you from somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> but that was like a that was like a big turning point for me. But it was uh, that working on that show was incredible. They you know. Every week, there'd be a big celebrity who was a guest that was doing it for, like, scale just because they were a big fan of the show. When I say scale, they were doing it for, like, next to no money. Um, they just wanted to be on 30 Rock because they, really the, they really loved the show and wanted to be on it. Uh, there was one episode. Uh, I don't know if you remember the Kidney Now episode uh, uh, where no. uh, Jack Donnie is trying to raise money for his father, who's played by Alan Alda, who needs a new kidney. So he, like, okay, yeah, yeah, gets yeah, all yeah. these... Gets all these celebrities to do like a "We Are the World" type song uh, uh, for his dad's kidney, and like you know, Wycliffe John was there, the Beastie Boys, Cheryl Crow, uh, Adam Levine from Maroon Five, Sarah Bareilles, Michael McDonald, Robert Randolph, like all of these, inc- uh, Mary J. Blige, like it was insane. Like all these incredibly talented uh, musicians who are like all icons and legends in their own right. Uh, all on one set at the same time. It was like being backstage at the Grammys. It was so cool, dude. That's awesome. Yeah, those those are. I mean, especially at that age, at that age, I would be starstruck. Yeah, like yeah. early twenties, experiencing that. That's cool. 
I'm going to end like sort of this line of questioning with this question. Uh-huh. SNL or Mad TV? For me, it's SNL. Like I like both, but it's always for me, it's always been SNL. Like I, you know, I think there's a crop of talent that came out of Mad TV that are incredibly underrated uh, and just so so talented. And there's some really really funny stuff. I don't feel I feel like Mad TV has never really gotten the props it deserves. Um, but for me, it's SNL because of the live component and just the fact that it's been around for so much longer. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I was a Mad TV guy. I mean, but I was also both, right? I was always yeah. catching up with both. I've always loved sketch comedy. I've always been impressed by the live aspect of it, just that 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 pressure. Um, and I still just consume content left and right. Like any podcast content with cast members, I'm like, I need to know more. Like what goes into making this stuff? Yeah. But, you know, comedy comes in a lot of different forms. You bring in it as, a, as an F1 impressionist. You have the IndyCar guy. Uh, you have the soundboard breakdown, uh, and even a very passionate skate dancer by the name of Laces Kelly. Dude, there you go. You're just not arguing, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, I love that sketch, man. It's just like, like the the thing for me when I watch things like that, it's like, it's it's easy to understand after watching it, right? Like why it's funny and, and you know why this piece of content was created. But, you know, what goes in to come in, like, what was the thought process? Like, oh, I'm, I'm going to have a skate dancing crew and we're going to look for this potentially fictitious place that's real, that's not real, called Skate City. Um, you know, how did that idea come about? So for people who are listening who don't know what the hell we're talking about, uh, John <laughs> is referencing a short film and kind of web series I did called Skate City back in like 2008. Um, and it was about a bunch of roller skaters looking for a mythical place called Skate City. Um, and we all wore like uniforms and it was very stupid, but very funny. And it was one of my favorite things I've ever made still. And it was one of the first things I ever made. Um, and I, uh, am delighted that you brought it up, but, uh, (laughs) the inspiration for it was, um, my, my wife and I, well, we were dating, we were girlfriend, boyfriend at the time we were in Central Park and there was a huge, um, group of people, like probably 200, 300 people on roller skates and roller blades uh, in this like fenced out area that was paved with a DJ in the middle. Uh, and the DJ was like blaring music and everyone was just like, it was essentially like a skate park that was like put in the middle of Central Park that they had set up for the weekend. And it was magical. It was really cool. Everyone was having the best time. And I learned that it was an organization called the Central Park Dance Skating Association or the Central Park Skate Dancing Association. And I was like, oh man, this is this is magical. This is amazing. And that was the inspiration. Like what I was looking at with Skate City was this like magical place. And then yeah, everything else sort of like fell into place. Wow. Yeah. No, I love it. I love it. I know I watched it and I'm like, this is because that's the type of content I love where it's where you can question yourself and say, like, who thought this was funny, right? But it is funny, right? You know? It's hilarious, yeah. you know? But I, I, So I love watching that. But, you know, go, I, I had no plans to ask you about it, but I realized when I put it in there, I'm like, I'm curious. I want to know how you came with this idea. But the original question I had is, are there any other areas of comedy that you explore that maybe we don't see through your social media? I mean, I did uh, stand-up for a decent amount of time. Like, okay. I, I, I dabbled in stand-up for a little bit in New York and then stopped. And then I picked it up again when I lived in SF. My wife and I lived in San Francisco for about a year. 
And uh, I did a lot of stand-up there, and I really enjoyed it. And I think partially it was because I didn't have a creative outlet there. Um, and I was making videos, but I wasn't getting a ton of engagement with it. So I was like doing like a lot of mics and would occasionally do shows and stuff. And I really enjoyed stand up a lot and I enjoyed performing with people and like feeling the energy of the crowd. And like, uh, I, I enjoyed the process of it, but then the pandemic happened and people weren't doing comedy, live comedy for a long time. And then my wife and I had a kid and, uh, uh being, a, doing stand up comedy consistently, it takes a lot of time. And, uh, I didn't have, you know, I had to start cutting things out of my life and that was something that just sort of fell by the wayside because of that. Okay. I mean, that's something I've always wanted to do, but have not necessarily one have mustered up the bravery. Cause I mean, it's repetition, right? Getting up on yeah. stage. It's just, you've got to figure out how to get on stage and then, and then figure out the, the content later. But, you know, you enjoy stand-up. Take me through start, sort of starting stand-up, like your early days, you know, your bombs, your, your content. And then how, had, how did that change from when you stopped, like, around the pandemic time? I think uh, when I first started writing stand-up, one of my biggest mistakes was uh, scripting everything specifically uh, like, and, being, and, and focusing on being word-perfect. Uh, and I know there are some comedians that do that and that's like important to them, but I was focusing on being more perfect in like places where I thought there should be laughs. I would really be expecting it from the crowd and the crowd would feel that I was expecting that laugh and would not give me that, the energy I wanted because I was kind of like telegraphing it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so I think as I, uh, as I started doing stand-up more and more, it was more so like I was drafting an outline of points I wanted to hit. And there might be certain aspects of a joke that needed to be word perfect. But other than that, it could be a little looser and feel a little more organic. Like I was having a conversation with the crowd uh, and also allowed me to be more in the moment. So if something did flop or something did do better than expected, I could speak to that. Because often like something the audience, I think, enjoys if something bombs if you acknowledge it you typically get a laugh yeah. uh, instead of just like being nervous and then trying to steamroll through to your next joke uh and then also not just not just outlining things but uh figuring out the transitions from joke to joke and finding uh, a natural transition from a joke to joke so it doesn't feel like you're just standing up there reading a bunch of tweets Right. You know? <laughs> right. No. Oh, yeah. I, I, I totally understand that because I've seen stand up that way, too, where it just doesn't feel if it's very abrupt from yeah. joke to joke. Um, you know, what is your like your best memory from your stand up time? I think uh, it was towards the end of the time I was in SF and I found like a five to eight minute set that like I felt really good about. And I would go into a mic and I would do it with all the confidence that I knew was really strong and nobody there knew me. And I would just, I would just sort of like crush it and it felt really good. And it was a good feeling. And people were like, who, who the hell is a schmuck? <laughs> and, uh, that was probably like the high for me it was going in knowing that I had like eight minutes of really polished material, um, that I knew was going to do well and it did. So that was really fun. 
All right, cool. All right, well, let's hear those eight minutes. Go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I would not do that to you. Uh, you know, and these content journeys take us to a lot of places. I've, I Just this 91 Octane project for me has taken me to places that I wouldn't have dreamed of and has made me spend a lot more money as well. Um, in your case, you know, with kind of this exploring F1 content or even going back to your early days of content creation, what places have those things taken you that you wouldn't have otherwise gone to? Um, just you mean as a Formula One content creator? Even, even before that, really, any any of your content that, that has taken you somewhere either physically, mentally, creatively that you wouldn't have gone had you not taken on that project? I think for me, uh, especially in the last year, it, um, it got me my most recent job. So like my wife, um, my wife lost her job about a year ago. And I was for three years, the spokesperson for Spectrum Mobile and Spectrum Cable and like had this really sweet, cushy actor job where I was filming like, you know, 20 commercials a year, but I was making like really good money doing it. And so we both had like really two pretty like consistent incomes and felt really good. And then my campaign ended after three years, my wife lost her job and, you know, she was like, you need to, you need to find something that's stable. Like you need to try to find work. Uh, and the, the writer's strike was looming, the actor's strike was looming, and I, you know, made a LinkedIn account. I'd never been on LinkedIn in my life, uh, <laughs> and started, you know, applying for jobs and trying to fit, find like where uh, my skill set would fit in sort of like the corporate landscape. And I started doing some freelance content creator stuff, like I made some TikToks for Sabaro. I made some TikToks for Drumstick, you know, the uh, frozen dessert treat. Yeah. Uh, and then I sort of like fell ass backwards into making F1 content. And that created sort of this perfect storm where I realized I could apply uh, to be like a copywriter or content creator for brands, um, which is what I do now. I work, I, I work for a bank. I do like social content for, for a bank and I make like TikToks and Instagrams and stuff. And so it got me like gainful employment and this sort of consistent corporate job that I really enjoy. I love it. I love the people I work for. I love the company I work for. Um, and it also, I think creatively takes the pressure off of me making content and like going on auditions. Cause it used to be, I would go to an audition or I make a piece of content and my mentality would be like, this piece of content has to hit and has to change my life for like, this audition, I have to book this audition because I need this money and I need, you know, I need my career to take a turn now. Now making content and going on auditions is like a bonus on top of everything else I do, uh, both at work and at home, which is, which is like been an incredible, uh, like, sh like mental shift for me. Okay, and, and you sort of already asked my, uh, answered my follow-up question, but I, I want to hit it explicitly. You know, what are, what are some of the differences in content creation professionally with the bank and the content creation that you are going through now because i would have expected your full-time job to have more pressure but you're describing something different i, I think with my my, my full-time job like it, because it's a bank there's certain like uh, there's much tighter parameters you have to work with there's both like legal parameters and then there's like brand parameters and so like you're working within like a much smaller box and so you have to be like a little more creative because uh, you don't have as much creative freedom as you do if you were just like a content creator making a piece of content for yourself. 
Um, and so, you know, I know that the, there are certain limitations that I have uh, working like within the confines of, of that job. Uh, but I'm able to like weave in my own like personal humor and blend that with like whatever the brand message is. Um, so, yeah. Does that answer what, your question? It, it does. Uh, but, yeah. And in terms of, like, sometimes this is a weird question, but sometimes I'll see content from these big companies where I'm like, how did that make it out of there? Right? Like, yeah. how, who decided that was okay to post? What right. What is the process of getting greenlit on content, you know, in, in that environment? I think it's, it just goes through several layers of approval. So, like, you have, like, a level where, like, the creative department, like, goes through a process and they have to approve everything. And then that gets shared to uh, like the higher ups in the marketing department who have to like approve it. And then like, it has to go through like a level of compliance and we have to be like, okay, like as a financial institution, can we legally say this? Um, and so it has to go through so many, at least the company I work at has to go through so many layers of approval that um, if anything was like off, it would get caught along the way, if that makes sense. It does. Now, going on to your personal content, like your F1 content, that page, is there anybody that you run content by sometimes when you maybe have some doubts around whether... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Does she see everything before we see it? I think so, yeah. Like, she's yeah, like... Okay. Um, I mean, we've been together for a very long time, and she's, like, almost always been the sounding board I use for whether... Uh, is is this funny? Is this okay? Like, you know, I try to be fairly positive. I try not to be mean in most of the content I make. I don't believe in punching down. Uh, I'm okay with with making fun of people who are in power. Like, I'm fine punching up or, or making fun of someone that, like, maybe deserves it. But, uh, like, I don't like making fun of drivers uh, who are, like, struggling or having poor performance uh, uh, or anything like that. So... I think my wife, uh, Jenny, like does a great job being like, yeah, this is funny. This is cute. But also like she's acts as a good sensor for being like, this is mean spirited or this isn't like really your voice. Um, so yeah, she's, she, she's pretty much, uh, who I screen everything by. All right. Yeah. She's, she's a lawyers in your, in your outside of corporate environment. Yeah. Now, I think the last question I have is that you have a bag of sketches that you'll pull from. We we talked about this earlier. How you've got some some threads that you continue to uh, use, and this leads to like a creation of specific characters. Sometimes, what yeah. is like your favorite character that you've created? Uh, you know, and and how did that? How was that idea developed? I think my favorite character that I do is the IndyCar guy that I do. Like it doesn't okay. um, the IndyCar character that I do. Uh, does, like those videos do not necessarily do that well, like because I think IndyCar has like a smaller global audience, and like most of my follow people who follow me like follow me for F1 content. Uh, so the IndyCar stuff I make does not get a ton of engagement, but I really enjoy it because it's it's a character that my uh, old comedy partner and I used to do, or it's a variation of that character. Um, we used to do the show, the sketch, there was a recurring sketch called He Gone, where we were um, SEC college football AM radio hosts. And so if a, a college football coach had a bad week, we would be like, Derek Dewey, University of Tennessee, he gone. 
keep going. Bye bye. See you. Wouldn't want to be a. But then we would like, then we would break it down and like uh, exaggerate it. Like if Nick Saban didn't beat a team by forty points, we'd be like, Nick Saban, keep going. <laughs> Alabama only beat UAB by by twenty one points. Any any win by less than forty is a loss in my book. Uh, like dumb stuff like that. So it's like a variation of that character, and it's like a very dumb, cartoony Southern accent that's like a blend of a bit different, a bunch of different Southern accents. Like it, the, the the accent makes no sense. But um, the IndyCar character is probably my favorite character that I do, just because it like it's so easy and fun. Yeah, no, I remember, I remember like scrolling and like, cause I thought you were exclusively F1 content, and I scrolled and I see IndyCar guy, and I'm like, hell yeah, like okay, like I started thinking maybe you're gonna span into like other motorsports. I'm like, this is awesome, cause I really enjoy that content, but oh, I nice. understand like your, uh, you know, your audience is like, well, well, we want the F1 stuff. We don't, we don't, we right. don't even understand this. We don't watch this. <laughs> but uh, but now that we learned a little bit more about you, now we're going to put you to the test. And I don't know how you feel about the Motorhead Blitz, but we're going to give you a current event automotive trivia chance at becoming the King Motorhead. I'm not okay. going to tell you who the King Motorhead is. I think you already know and how much they scored, maybe, because you did tell me you watched that specific episode. But I'm not going to tell you what points they actually scored. Now, for some rules of the game, you get 10 questions. Each question is worth 1,000 points. And on the final question, you get to wager all the points you've banked for a chance at maybe doubling up, or maybe you can just bet small. It's up to you, Jeopardy rules, uh, is what we're using. All right. So uh, are you ready? Are you clear on the game? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Here we go. So on the first question, this Las Vegas union has announced a deadline for a new contract deal ahead of the Vegas Grand Prix. Your choices are Casino Workers Union, Culinary Workers Union, Utility, utility Workers Union, or United Steel Workers. It's uh, Casino Workers. Oh, man, it is the Culinary Workers Union, sir. So you're 0 for okay. 1. You still have 9 to go, okay. but you're 0 for, 0 for 1. Uh, yeah, so the Culinary Culinary Workers Union actually gave a deadline of November 10th on a new contract deal before they said, we're not going to work anymore ahead of the Vegas GP if we don't get what we want. And, I mean, I hope they get paid. I'm sure they will get paid, but if they don't, a little ridiculous. If they don't, McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not even that. Maybe not yeah. even that. All right. On to question number two. Nissan only sold 1,571 of this model from June of 2022 to October of 2023. The Nissan Rogue, the Nissan Leaf, the Nissan GTR, or the Nissan Z? I don't even know what the Z is. Uh... I want to say Leaf, but I'm going to say Z because I don't know what that is. Oh, nice pivot. You got it right. It is the Nissan Z, one of the worst releases in new non-limited production cars. Uh, they had supply, supply chain issues, dealer markup issues, um, and the available options uh, really kind of buried that car. So you're now one for two with 1,000 points. You got I'm looking at it right now. It kind of looks like a Miata with a hard top. <laughs> 
I mean, it kind of, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, it's not, it's not particularly flashy, but it costs almost 60K, and it's being yeah. marked up to 100K. Would you pay $100,000 for that car? Absolutely not. I know I wouldn't. All right, going on to question number three. BMW crashed their $186,000 XM red label at this legendary hill climb. Pike's Peak hill climb, chasing the dragon, climb to the clouds, or Mount Equinox? Uh, I'm going to say A. I don't, I, I'm not familiar with any of these. <laughs> oh, you got it right again. You are at the yeah. accidental car guy on this game. You are two for three, sir. 2,000 points. That's right. They actually released some footage recently. Uh, they tried to break a record in their SUV and ran the car right into a tree and rolled it over. And luckily, the driver oh was completely gosh. safe. Matt Mullins was completely safe. And they're preparing for another record attempt here shortly. $185,000. That's crazy, man. Yeah. All right. So you're two for three. 2,000 points in the bank. Heading into question number four. I have a this... quick question. Is that $185,000 MSRP or is that dealer markup? That is MSRP. <laughs> <laughs> so the dealer markup will probably add another 100K on top of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. But it does have 700 horsepower. So, I mean, it's, oh, it's wow. a decent enough car. Sure. Um, all right, so the next question. This F1 driver locked himself in a room and canceled everything after the Mexican Grand Prix. Your choices are Checo Perez, Yuki Tsunoda, Charles Leclerc, or Lando Norris. I'm going to assume it's Checo because he's had such a disastrous Grand Prix. I mean, Yuki did have that contact with Piastri and like was running really well and then into the back, but I'm going to say Checo. Man, you're like you're 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 really good with the car questions and not so much with the F1 questions. You got that one wrong. You almost had it. It was Yuki. So Yuki, Yuki actually locked himself in his room after the race because of what you just mentioned. He he yeah. uh, uh, knocked with Piastri uh, and lost his seventh place position or a potential seventh place position. He was driving a really good race too. Uh, you know, I think he. Uh, he hasn't evolved a ton. He's still kind of reckless uh, on the track. but Highly learned, emotional. Yeah, if he learned a little more self-control, I think he'd be, uh, you know, he'd definitely be closer to being a, like a, I wouldn't say top tier, but higher mid-tier driver. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm completely with you on that because I feel like him more than most, or maybe we just see it more. He's very honest with himself, maybe not in the moment. Yeah. But sort of his follow-up statements about his performance and how he's doing and the struggles he's having, he acknowledges, like, yeah, I'm emotional. I need to work on that, and I need to kind of pull back a little bit. Because, I mean, we've had this sort of – this story of him kind of being too aggressive for as long yeah. as we've known him. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, so you're two for four, 2,000 points, okay. heading into question number five. According to film consultant Lewis Hamilton – this F1 race will play an important part in the future F1 movie. The movie has extended filming due to the actor's strike. The track choices are the Brazilian Grand Prix, the Las Vegas Grand Prix, the Monaco Grand Prix, or the U.S. Grand Prix. Oh, that's weird because they filmed at Silverstone, but I don't know about them filming at any other place. Um... Will you say it again one more time? Your choices are oh, the, the question or the answers? The answers. 
Brazilian Grand Prix, Vegas Grand Prix, Monaco Grand Prix, or U.S. Grand Prix? I'm going to say Vegas. And you are up another 1,000 points, sir. You are now three for five. Yeah, he said that... uh, Due to the actor strike, they're prolonging filming into 2024, which makes absolute sense. Brad Pitt says he's not going to join any of the filming. They will continue to film scenes without actors, so they're going to film some scenes of cars and such. But Vegas is supposed to play a big role in this movie. I guess they're trying to open up F1 in the U.S. or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By the way, uh, this is I know that we're supposed to be doing a blitz and I'm going through this, but have you ever seen the 1966 film Grand Prix? I have not. With James Garner. It's actually, the race footage is really, really good. The movie is kind of meh. But yeah. the race footage is unbelievable. They filmed it like 10 real races, real Formula 1 races in the 60s. And they like filmed at Monaco. They filmed at Zandvoort. They filmed at Spa. Um, watching it just for the race footage alone is like really, really cool. So you, you can buy take it. Take a look at that. You can rent it on Google Play for like three bucks. It's great. Crop yeah, rate. might check it out. Yeah, no, like those. It's 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 kind of hard to even fathom that at that time they were even even able to get race footage, right? Those must yeah. have been huge rigs. Yeah, to get probably. that footage. Was it like on board or was it like yeah, on it, was, the outside? It, it, it was on board. Yeah. Wow, that must have been so dangerous. Totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. On to question number six. Ford has released a new supercharger for the Mustang that increases its output from 480 horsepower to this many horsepower. 600, 700, 800, or 900? Um, a leap from 480 to a lot of those feels like a pretty drastic jump, so I'm going to say 600. But I the answer is 800. Yeah, the right. answer is 800, which is crazy. I th- had the same thought. I was like, this one's going to be a little hard because that's such a huge jump from 480 to 800. And yeah. who needs 800 horsepower in a Mustang? I mean, we already Great have a Russian. lot of trouble with those cars anyway. You're not going to be able to put that power down. It's just going to skate all over the place. But yeah. it is carb approved, which means we can have them in California. And oh, it comes with a three-year warranty, which is unheard of for Boost after that. Oh, I love that for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like driving yeah. a car with that much horsepower is like uh, me trying to drive uh, in sim racing with like no traction control. That's exactly it's what like, it's like. Yeah. It's like driving on ice. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. I mean, and, yeah, it's, it's a little dangerous. As a, the car guy in me gets happy about this stuff, but the yeah. reasonable, logical person in, inside me is like, this is very dangerous. But, yeah. you know, I'll see if I can get myself in one anyway. <laughs> um, all right. On to question number seven. You are at 6,000 points currently, or actually 3,000 points currently. I'm sorry. Um, this 80 supercar is being auctioned. It was featured in The Wolf of Wall Street. Your choices are Ferrari Testarossa, De Tomaso Pantera, BMW M1, or Lamborghini Countach. Uh, I'm going to say Ferrari. Lamborghini Countach. This was the uh, the car that DiCaprio fell out of in that. Have you watched The Wolf of Wall Street? The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, is this the one where he, he falls out of when he takes the lemons? The yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, it was a Countach. Everybody was an up in up in arms because it's a 1.5 million dollar car that Scorsese decided to destroy. Uh, he did not want to use a model. He wanted to use the actual car. But now it's that's being so auctioned. Sad. 
for $1.5 million in the current condition, which I don't know who would want to buy, Ugh. but, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little disgusting. Yeah. Three for six here, James. There's still a chance that you can uh, get King Motorhead. We've got three questions to go. <laughs> here we go. Initial D is getting a reboot, and this famous Fast and the Furious actor will be directing it. Your choices are Vin Diesel, Sung Kang, John Cena, or Michelle Rodriguez? I'm going to say uh, most of them don't seem like the director types. Uh, I feel like it would be Michelle or Sun Kang. So I'm going to say Sun Kang. Boom. You got it. That's right. He is actually going to be adopting the manga and trying to make a true-to-form initial D, live-action initial D. I don't know when it's going to come out, but it's pretty cool that he's investing in this. He's very much in the car world compared to everybody else on that list. That's cool. All right. Let's so put, you know them, put their family. It, was that? <laughs> put their, put their family. <laughs> Only on screen. Off screen, they don't <laughs> seem to be. Yeah, yeah. John Cena, nobody's ever seen him. So, you know, it's kind of hard. Yeah, they uh, said he was in the movie, but, like, I didn't see him anywhere. <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. All right. So 4,000 points, four for seven. Uh, going into question number nine, right before the wager question. The CEO of this manufacturer made the claim the door panels are bullet bulletproof to almost all subsonic projectiles. And this was about their latest truck. This claim was recently put to the test by a comedian friend of his. Your choices are Elon Musk, Jim Farley, Henrik Fisker, or RJ Scarringe. Uh, the only one that makes sense who would be friends with comedians is Elon Musk. So I'm going to say Elon Musk. All right. You got that right. Yeah. He actually had Joe Rogan, of all people, take a bow and arrow to his truck and it visibly dented it. So was it, it the Cybertruck? It was the Cybertruck. Yes, sir. It was a Cybertruck. So that, that thing's the demise of that company. That thing is what? It's pr that thing is proving to be like the demise of that company. You are one hundred percent right. Yeah, like can't they, they can't figure out production issues. It looks nothing like the concept that they put out. Uh, Elon keeps lofting these claims that it is the best car in the universe, and it keeps falling short. Yeah, it's I, I'm surprised he's still sticking to it. Actually, yeah. knowing Elon, I'm not that surprised. But <laughs> all right, you have five thousand points in the bank, sir. Um, with your last question coming up, how much are you going to wager? I'll wager it all, Bob. 5,000 points for a potential 10,000 points, and I am going to add more pressure by saying that if you do get this right, you will be our new King Motorhead. I love that. All right. 5,000 points, wagering it all into the last question. This F1 driver has a habit of swapping helmets. He recently swapped a helmet with Oscar Piastri. Your choices are Lando Norris, Fernando Alonso, Checo Perez, or Daniel Ricciardo. I'm going to say it's Fernando Alonso because they recently posted a photo of them together, and then everyone was joking about Alpine seeing that photo of them. And I think Sports Illustrated posted a, a picture of SpongeBob looking depressed, looking at the computer, and the computer had an Alpine logo, so I'm going to say Fernando Alonso. This totally feels like the last, like, who wants to be a millionaire question. You're adding all this color. Like, I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. And you are 100% right, sir. Congratulations, Mr. James. You are the new King Motorhead on 91 Octane with 10,000 points. Um, 
thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was so much fun. Thank you for uh, providing all the insight and, you know, entertaining all my questions and kind of, you know, even some of the personal stuff I had with like the stand up and some of your PA history. Uh, but we learned a lot about you and, and, you know, I, I would love to have you again in the future. Cause this was, this was, this was great. I got to find a way to get to Corona and come to you and be in studio with you. Cause that's what I really wanted to do. But we got a kid, wipe into the car to pick him off from school. But, uh, this was super fun. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, I can be mobile too. So maybe we'll figure that out too. Yeah. You know, it might, yeah. might be easier for me to get to LA, but thank you so much for joining me. Uh, that is our episode. Uh, this is 91 octane. That is all letters, no numbers. Also like, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at 91Octane. And if you want to send us any emails, info at 91Octane.com. James, any last words? Anything you want to shout out? Anyone you want to shit talk? No, just uh, be kind to everyone, people. Yeah, no, hell yeah. No, that's, that's awesome. I really love the message, man. No, it's, be kind, be creative, be cool, uh, and good night.